Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. The three-decade rule of Sudan's President Bashir came to an end in 2019 in what seemed like a rebooted Arab Spring led by youth and women. The protest movement led senior military officials to remove Bashir in a coup, resembling the events of Egypt in 2011. But protesters continued to demand the military's removal from politics, and some were massacred that year. This was followed by a charter creating a transitional coalition government composed of civilians and the military. In 2020, the Trump administration blackmailed Sudan into recognizing Israel in exchange for removing it from the list of state sponsors of terrorism. This led to a reduction of sanctions and improved economic ties with the international community. The military continued to obstruct a transition and then staged a coup in October of 2021, but was surprised by the popular opposition. They placed the prime minister under house arrest and arrested many civilian leaders. Under international pressure, the military restored the prime minister, but it was recognized as a sham, and protests continued until he resigned in January of this year. In fact, protests continue today. Sudan is suffering from an economic disaster, decades of authoritarian rule, and foreign intervention from countries in the region and the West. So how did we get here, and where are we going? To understand, I'm joined by Megdi Al-Ghazuli, a Sudanese academic and fellow of the Rift Valley Institute, as well as a frequent commentator and writer on Sudanese affairs on his blog, Still Sudan. Megdi, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. So I guess let's just get right into it. Um, You know, you no doubt know that Sudan is even less known, I think, or understood to Westerners than perhaps other countries in the Middle East. And the protest movement came as a surprise, I think, to all of us. Um, So can you maybe give a quick summary to our audience of the events from 2019 to the present, you know, the uprising, the removal of Bashir, the coup, and where things stand today? I'll I'll try to do that. But (laughs) I think the best part of your introduction that I really appreciated is when you said that the U.S. effectively blackmailed Sudan to signing a deal with Israel which was made the condition for Sudan's re-entry into the international arena in a way. And it was a condition. Um, And it was a blackmail. Um, Had the international community, including the US, any serious interest in bringing Sudan out of its sort of multiple and complex crisis, that would have cost something in the words of the former Minister of Finance who assumed the post after the toppling of President Bashir, would have cost something in the range of 12 billion US dollars. That would be Sudan's bailout price from the severe crisis it stuck in. And that that price proved to be a bit too much for the Western world. So um, what they wanted instead is, is they took money from Sudan instead of paying money for Sudan. Sudan was forced to settle uh, cases in U.S. courts uh, out of court with hefty payments in the millions of U.S. dollars that was effectively taken out of people's mouths. That is at a moment of severe crisis. Now, um, in my mind, Sudan's history can be- best be understood through the commodities it exports. Mm-hmm. Sudan began his life as a modern nation with the export of cotton, which was produced from the central rainlands of Sudan. And this sustained Sudan for a long time, until probably the early 80s. 
when a financial crisis that hit many parts of the world also hit Sudan at the end of the 70s. And Sudan was plunged in deep debt. It didn't really come out of that deep debt crisis um, until 2002 or 2003. Um, at that time, Sudan was a producer of oil. And oil replaced cotton as, the, in many ways, the bloodline of the country and the lifeline of how the country works. It was a lifeline for people in the heartland of the country. It was a trail of tears and blood for people where this, um, where oil was produced in southern Sudan. The conflict over southern Sudan ended in the secession of southern Sudan in 2011. And this plunged Sudan into its second major financial crisis. The first being in the 70s, in the late 70s, the second being after the secession of South Sudan, when Sudan lost oil. And with that, it lost essentially all of its foreign income. And um, a country like Sudan, like many other countries, is heavily dependent on foreign currency returns, but because it produces very little in terms of manufacturers' goods or effectively no manufactured goods. And it depends on its medicines, on a good chunk of its food also, because of the changes in people's diets and their reliance on wheat, it depends on imports. To finance these imports, you need US dollars. To get US dollars, you need to export something to the outside world. And that something was for some time oil. And this oil made Sudan a middle income country. But it also made it a very troublesome country where people fought long wars for the state because it was the state was the only sort of mechanism through which you could control the oil industry. And indeed, that long war ended in secession. And when it happened, the two countries that emerged out of that process were both poorer in a way. Uh, South Sudan was plunged in a, in a chronic and still continuing civil war. And um, Sudan was plunged into the current crisis that included also civil wars in its new peripheries, places that were once upon a time uh, sort of in the center of the country. Now, because of the secession of South Sudan, they became its southern border. Mm. This also included a war that is famous in the U.S., the Darfur War, which people in the U.S. might know better than other than many of other of Sudan's other chronic wars. And these wars were exacerbated by the production of oil, and they became even more intense after oil was lost. And it was clear that the central government was getting weaker, was becoming weaker, and there was a way to topple it if you try hard enough. And that way was arguably uh, rural insurrection, sort of wars fought out in the in the countryside. Now, these wars did not bring down President Bashir's government. For one good reason is that he had a, um, a good insurance against rural war, which is the rural militia. So mm. he, in a way, he invented a way of governing um, that is not only true for Sudan, but also true for other places around the world, places like Yemen or Afghanistan or Congo, are all somehow um, caught in in this government by militia logic. And mm. um, um, myself and my co-author of mine, we are working together on a book, Edward Thomas. We think that President Bashir is, in many ways, the progenitor of this way of governance. Mm. And it has a history in Sudan that I won't develop right now. But he created a, a, a militia, a large militia. And through mm. this militia, he could suppress insurgency 
in rural Sudan, in places like Darfur, South Kordofan, and the Blue Nile. This militia became, in a way, his security, his insurance against against coups, against in against um, also protest movement in the heartland. And indeed, in 2013, after Sudan lost that oil um, and became a poorer country for that, President Bashir faced a financial crisis. He was not able anymore to finance cheap bread in places like Khartoum and other cities in the central heartland of the country or in the urban centers of the country. And cheap bread was like in Egypt, was the basis of the social contract. The social contract relied on providing cheap bread for the city and in Sudan also cheap fuel. And that happened through subsidies, through subsidizing um, bread, wheat, imported wheat, and subsidizing fuel, part of which was imported too. So when he faced that financial crisis, the, the ruling party at the time started thinking about cutting down these expenses. And they did that in 2013 in one step. Um, this precipitated uh, a large protest movement in the city. And the response was to send snipers on the street. So he brought in that militia he had used to quell rural insurgency. He brought it into the city and he ordered the militia to shoot people. And indeed they did. Um, scores of young women and men were killed. And this was in a way the triage of the 2018-2019 revolution. This was the first wave of that, of that movement. And um, in between, there was a long lull where people, mm. the established political parties, didn't have an idea where to go. Mm. The new protest movement was examining itself, sort of experimenting with organizational forms. And it came up with a very Sudanese invention that is called the Resistance Committee, which in a way is a gang of young women and men, mostly men, of course, who decide to... Um, operate against the police force. In many times, they're not politically that mature, or mature is not maybe the right word. They're not mm -hmm. politically that informed, but they know who the enemy is. And the, mm -hmm. the best thing about these resistance committees is that they emerged at the neighborhood level. They did not emerge on campus. They emerged where people lived, which meant that new alliances could be created between radical students who were in many cases at the forefront of these committees and between people who are who, who constitute the largest section of the labor force in Sudan, like in many other countries in the region, informal labor, people who make bricks or who fix fences or who to build walls or, or who um, are involved in petty trade, people who mm. make living day by day. And this was the heart of the protest. In many ways, this was the major strength of the protest movement that brought down President Bashir in 2019. At the heart of that was this alliance between radical students, people who had campus experience, who could use language to sort of express their political anger, and people who voted in a way with their feet, who expressed their anger by marching, long marches, and attacking um, headquarters of the ruling party, um, signs of of, of government, including places like the Zakat um, Chamber, which is the, the, an alms office, a form of Islamic alms. And people had a sort of a um, long-standing anger against the Zakat Chamber because they thought it was taking their money and not giving it back in any substantive way to the poor or to the needy. 
and the security services, of course, and uh, police. So that's, that's actually, so I'm glad that you've raised that point because I'm curious, you know, why did the military get involved in overthrowing Omar Bashir? Um, what, like, what are their interests specifically? That's a very good question, especially that you raise it in that way, in the, why did the military get involved? The military got involved because they needed to shortcut this transformation. They needed to be at the right place at the right time. If they had let this wave move on, it would probably have radicalized further. The demands would have been a bit more unstoppable. And it was a way of short-circuiting a revolution, if you like. In a way, the start of the restoration, the start of the counter-revolution, was this coup d'etat that happened in April 2019 when the military pushed away Omar al-Bashir. The people who took play, who took over power were, in essence, his captains. The leader of that militia I talked to you about became the second man, um, a major officer in the, in the army who was under Bashir, the inspector general of the army, became the top man. Um, other senior figures in the army occupied major positions in the sovereignty council, which was effectively the presidency, a sort of collegial presidency led by uh, members of the army. Now, Obviously, they they did something that had also a history in Sudan's in Sudan's earlier histories of revolution, and we in 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 the in the history books written by Sudanese, it's called the coup d'état of the commander in chief. It's when the commander in chief sort of takes on the, the takes on the job of removing the government, and it happened twice in Sudan's record. It happened first in. Uh, what was it, in 1958, when the commander-in-chief pushed away uh, an elected prime minister who demanded to be pushed away. It was sort of a, a coup, a sort of a, a, a coup, con a conspiracy in the palace. Mm -hmm. And the second time it happened in 1985, when there was also such a broad protest movement against President Nimeri. And the second in command, who was the chief of the army, pushed the president um, away from his seat and took his position. So it was, it's a way of, 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 uh, of ensuring the security services and the military mm. and the coercive apparatus of the state against the anger of a wide and broad protest movement. That's not, that, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, in terms of what happened last year with the military then once again trying to uh, overthrow the prime minister. You know the U that you know that was another uh, coup attempt. The U.S. appeared to oppose the coup, but it refused to call it a coup, which actually kind of reminded me of Sisi's coup in Egypt uh, in 2013. But we're used to the U.S. having a major role in these kinds of events. But in this case, it does seem that lately the U.S. has taken a bit more of a back seat and. Players like, you know, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Qataris, the Egyptians, the Turks, the Israelis, and others regionally are playing a, a larger role. So can you explain, you know, how important was the foreign role in events in Sudan since 2019? Well, I think it was very, very important because before, before this year, 2018, 2019, if you want to understand where a coup originates in Sudan, you need to make a telephone call with Cairo. <laughs> if you want to work out who's doing what, you need, I mean, right. let me explain this better. The Sudanese army is in many ways an Egyptian creation. Mm. 
the logic of the army, the way it thinks about about its interests, the way it has developed is Egyptian because it was born of um, the Egyptian colonial experience in Sudan, if you like. And in many ways, it was the king's, the king's army, sort of the Egyptian king's army. Even the Nasserite turn, the Nasser turn in the Sudanese army did not happen full throng. So in, in many ways, it remains attached to these traditions. And I think the, the ideal place where the, where the Sudanese army would think itself, would, would wish itself, would in many ways be where the Egyptian army now is in control of a state. And both of them look up to the Israeli army as probably the best example of, a, of, a, of an army that has a state, an army that controls a state. And I think that goes a long way in explaining how things happen today in Sudan. It does involve a lot of Egyptian influence. It also involves a lot of Israeli influence. And um, you have probably followed, or maybe some, some of your listeners have followed, these clandestine visits that continue to happen between Khartoum and, and Tel Aviv. And usually they involve primarily um, security officers and military men who are discussing sort of undisclosed military affairs. And when the head of the 25th October coup, the current sort of, he, he is effectively the president, head of the Sovereignty Council, um, was asked about this, he said, oh, there is nothing to hide. There are only security matters that we are discussing. So um, as you can see, it's, it, that, that goes a long way in explaining um, who moves sort of the chess pieces in Sudan today. Um, the, some of this happens directly with Israeli involvement and some of, the, of it happens through the mediation of the Emiratis, who in many ways have financed a good chunk of the transitional period. Uh, not They haven't financed everybody, they have financed their allies. And there are um, open access data that explain this. Almost all of Sudan's gold exports go to the United Arab Emirates. This is effectively sort of 99.9% of Sudan's gold exports. And that's um, one major uh, export item that Sudan has. So gold constitutes almost a half of Sudan's export returns. And all this happens through the Dubai market. And this sort of might explain a bit how much influence a country like the UAE has on a poor country like Sudan. Of course. And, you know, since you moved it to the economy, I did want to ask um, how important was oil in the Sudanese economy and what was the impact when the oil ran out? Well, it was very important. It, it replaced effectively all this rent-based economy, replaced Sudan's old agriculture. And it was a, um, a resource that, that was somehow much more amenable to control because controlling the gold, the, the oil revenue, depended on controlling wells through military force and militias were employed to do that in southern Sudan and controlling a single pipeline. So all that was needed was a concentrated police force or a militia force that sort of guarded the pipeline. Um, combined, of course, with the, with the uh, financial capacity to work out all these, all these receipts and, and export um, data and so on. And the dealings with the foreign companies that dug out the oil out, primarily Chinese companies. So it was something that a state bureaucracy could do very well um, without being open to sort of popular uh, 
questioning or popular scrutiny. And you needed a small bureaucratic force with a small, in many ways, a small military force to control a lot of money. And um, this was um, how Sudan became a middle-income country between 2000, 2000 and 2011, the 10 good years of Sudan. This meant this didn't apply to everybody in Sudan. Though. It applied essentially to urban centers. This um, financed a, a very big increase in consumption in Sudan. And it also meant a, a change, a major and drastic change in lifestyles. People were able, at least Sudan's middle classes, were able to buy more cars. Mm. You could find more than one car parked in a house. They could also afford more electricity. You could see people sort of doing more air conditioning. Um, sort of lifestyle in the capital chain. People were eating out more, uh, consuming more. And they looked at places like Dubai or, or, or Doha as examples of a good life. Um, now, this happened at the expense of much poorer people, people mm. in the periphery of the country, people in southern Sudan, who were controlled by an army uh, and the militia. Um, it also meant that very little money went to the countryside. So all that big money that was flowing into Khartoum meant that it wasn't going to places like Darfur, where infrastructure improvements would have been needed to improve productivity of the agricultural sector and keep people away from hunger. Um, it also meant that Sudan became completely reliant on imports of wheat to to feed its cities because people were depending on that cheap wheat that was coming in from outside to eat. And as I, um, in many ways, that was Bashir's present to the cities. That was his contract. I give you cheap bread, I give you cheap fuel, and otherwise you shut up and allow me to kill as many people as I want in a place like Darfur. And in many ways that worked. And that's probably one reason for the difficulty in relations between urban revolutionaries and these former rural insurgents in today's Sudan. Um, one reason for that deep mistrust is this is this un, unspoken contradiction at the heart of the country's politics, and many times um, often unspoken, between the interests of the countryside and the interests of the urban centre. Especially when you know that these urban centers contribute almost nothing to cross domestic politics. Yeah, no, it's interesting what you're saying. I mean, I, you know, Sudan did have this sort of state managed economy, right, at, at one point, and in the 1970s was still in that kind of developmental state. But much like, you know, countries like Egypt or Syria, uh, which what you just described reminds me of is Egypt and Syria, Sudan underwent this process of neoliberalism. And this creation of what you mentioned is consumption culture. So I guess, you know, why, can you explain why did the socialist experiment in Sudan come to an end? Um, you kind of talked about some of the consequences, but if you could elaborate. I mean, socialist experience would be probably what people thought it might be, but I'm not sure if that's what it was. The social mm -hmm. experience was um, in many ways monopoly purchased by state-owned companies of primary products produced in a poor countryside. That's the short version. So in, that meant in many, in, in many instances, I mean, not in many instances, there was a state company for cotton uh, mm -hmm. production and manufacture that had monopoly over the purchase of cotton. As a cotton producer, you were essentially forced to sell cotton to the government company at the government-determined price. And then this... Several other companies were created to cover other sort of profitable commodities. 
Um, there was a Sesame production purchase company that was also state-owned. And there was, um, and of course, Sudan sold land, sold land in, in large amounts to, to, Gulf, to Gulf, Arab Gulf countries. That was the time, what you call a socialist strategy, I'm not you, but what many would call a socialist strategy, <laughs> but, but is, is, is this calculation of the combination of Arab Gulf money and um, Sudanese land at one point, and there was a speculation at one point in the 70s, Egyptian peasants. The Egyptian peasant story didn't really materialize, so it, it remained Arab Gulf money and or Arab Gulf capital and yeah. Sudanese agricultural land. And but there was nothing socialist about it. This was this was the state sort of appropriating um the little meager profit it could scrap out of, of labor in of agricultural labor in Sudan's central rainlands, if you like. And they couldn't really make a lot of money out of it at the end of the day. Um, and it plunged Sudan into the serious debt crisis it found itself in at the end of the 80s because it had all these Arab Gulf countries to pay back to. It mm. didn't have really much money to, to give because most of these major expansive and very ambitious agricultural products pr um, proved a complete disaster in terms of productivity and in terms of output. The, 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 um, the paradoxically, it is Sudan's sort of traditional agriculture that is much more productive and much more um, adapted to Sudan's environmental crisis, which are many, than Sudan's capitalist agriculture. And today, Sudan relies exactly on this type of agriculture to fund its state coffers. Most of the money coming into Sudan's so the budget today is coming from sesame production in the um, sandy lands of Kordofan and therefore most of it is produced by very traditional means that go back to 100 years or more and um, and animal production which means a sort of livestock that people move around in, in, in dense prairies between desert pasture and, and, and more greener pasture in a cyclical fashion and mm. that has been now adapted to sort of export economy um, and these are all raw products. None of this goes through any manufacturing procedure, apart maybe from cleaning gum arabic, which is also it's a forest product. It's something that you don't really you pluck off trees at a particular season, and you pack in large sacks and you export to France. The people who are making them, the real money, of course, and all the producers are the middlemen who mm -hmm. have the capacity to mediate between. Um, European and American markets and the primary producer um, um, in Sudan. But that's most of where the money is coming from in today's Sudan. And if you compare that with the 19th century Sudan, it's almost the same. <laughs> the entire 20th century didn't happen. So, you know, Middle East observers may be aware of the terrible effects of inflation in places like Lebanon, Syria, Turkey, because that, that tends to, we hear about inflation or like Venezuela, that tends to dominate the news when we talk about that issue. But little, you know, it's little known that inflation in Sudan reached it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, reached at least 400%, which is oh, yes. yeah. insane. Yeah. So can you explain what caused this crazy high level of inflation and how this affected people's lives well it was i mean i'm not any i'm not an economist by training i'm an amateur in all these matters but 
to my mind, that was a, 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 what some people would name a stagflation. Mm-hmm. There was um, there were inflation inflationary pressures caused by the depreciation of the of the foreign currency, because the foreign currency was sustained at the at a, a price by uh, the, a government sort of funded price by the Bank of Sudan, and then the the post revolution government decided to float the currency, and with floating of the currency. Um, which meant it was available on the open market um, and allowed to compete against the U.S. dollar. And there was an immediate depreciation of the value of the currency to sort of very, um, very low levels. And this meant that everything Sudan gets is imported. So the price of almost every single commodity in the country is partially or completely dependent on the price of the U.S. dollar, which meant that all prices went up multiple times. And the critical factor in all these increasing prices was the price of fuel, which the government also decided to liberalize, which um, because it removed subsidies on fuel and it removed subsidies on bread. So it was, there was in one blow at, um, a, a, a severe depreciation of the value of the currency, um, um, a massive increase in the price of fuel, a massive increase in the price of wheat. And it all meant that the, the prices went really to the sky and people did not have the purchasing power to cover that. So um, what happened was essentially hunger. And this year, um, Sudan is a very hungry place. Uh, almost every third person in the country is facing a food crisis of some sort. There are definitions of what a food crisis is that you can read off WFP books or reports. But um, in, in, in simple terms, um, the current situation in the country is every third person is not sure what she or he will eat the next day because they, they can't cover that. And people are depending on different coping mechanisms to cover that problem. They're borrowing money. They're asking relatives from abroad to send money. Um, they're selling their meager means, be it a, a, a goat or a cow or um, uh, house utensils in the open market to cover food costs. And of course, they're cutting on all other expenditures. They're cutting on medicines. People don't go to doctors. They rely on anybody in the neighborhood who knows how to diagnose anything by his own sort of creativity. Um, And they're relying on traditional medicine to sort of heal themselves. And of course, they are also avoiding government because they don't want to pay taxes or to pay dues. Um, and this applies to one third of, of the country's population. Um, this also means, and this is something you can read off any UN, UN, UNICEF report, every third child in the country is stunted. Um, wow. And stunting means that you, you're so malnourished over a long period of time that you don't reach your normal height, your expected height. So it's not just hunger, it's chronic hunger. And the novelty about this hunger is that it's not only in the countryside, which where most of Sudan's historical hunger has been. It's also hunger that is happening in the cities. And this is partially responsible for the increase in crime rates in the country. Um, there is a lot of crime in a city like Khartoum. People who knew Khartoum in the 80s or, or even in the 90s wouldn't recognize this today. It was a very safe place to be. Somebody like yourself would even walk to the most distant neighborhood in Khartoum, the poorest of places, 
and nobody would ask you a question and people would even welcome you into their houses and maybe offer you something to eat. But today it's a very unsafe place. People are worried about their own well-being because there is armed robbery on the open street in main, in main crossings, in main streets. And, and, and these are the effects of what you term new liberalization. This is a, a man-made situation. Mm-hmm. Um, it is true, Sudan cereal production this year dropped by one-fifth. Um, but under, under better funding conditions for Sudan's farmers, they would probably be able to produce enough cereals to make everybody have sufficient food. But it's the way that food is distributed that is making mm. people hungry, not the way food is produced in itself. It's the way that market mechanisms are involved in, in ordering who gets to eat and who remains hungry. And, and this you can see in a place like uh, Gadarif State. Gadarif State is a part of eastern Sudan. It lies in the, a very uh, clay-dense plain in eastern Sudan. It's very rich in terms of, of, of soil. And it is Sudan's granary, if you like. It's where most of Sudan's sorghum, which is the staple cereal in Sudan's countryside, is produced. And most people in Gadarif are farmers or, or agricultural laborers. And Gadarif is paradoxically a very, very hungry place. So not only one third, but up to one half of people in Gadarif don't get enough to eat. And the reason is, is that they can't afford the sorghum that they themselves contribute to producing or produce. So agricultural labor on on farms in Gadarif don't get enough money to buy the sorghum that they themselves produce. That's simply put. That's wild. And if if you consider these things, you 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 see how a new liberal agenda, how much mess a new liberal agenda can cause in a place in a in a place far away place from the US like Sudan. It means hunger. It means um, um, stunting. It means poor child growth. It also means war because it feeds into the formation of militias. And it also feeds into criminality because it, and criminality is a one from being a petty criminal. It's probably better to be a, a militia member. You can probably make more if you are not if you're if you join a militia, and it means that a lot of young people don't have any opportunities. And um, in a way, this is a crushing defeat for all. Not defeat, but it sort of exposes the the duplicity of. Um, of Western countries when they talk about democratization in a place like Sudan. Now, democratization in a place like Sudan involves pulling Sudan out of its financial crisis. That financial crisis was precipitated by a severe debt crisis that goes back to the 70s. Um, Had the Western nations any interest in seeing Sudan move one step ahead, they would have relieved it of its debt and provided it and stopped um, sort of strong arming it into new liberal reforms that really yeah. pushed um, the way the economy works and allowed the country to think through its structures and not force it into a straitjacket that is, is not fit for. A straitjacket of entrepreneurship and the promotion of, um, of a, a consumption values and a consumption culture for which the country is not prepared. So no, that's really well, that's really well said. I just wanted to add, I mean, a lot of these uh, a lot of these policies that we're seeing now are coming at the advice of, and by advice, I just mean basically forced on by the IMF, right? Because of the debt that you're talking about. And we see this happen to so many 
developing countries. But in particular, just to build off what you're saying, a lot of we've seen the IMF kind of uh, pushing Sudan into uh, removing these subsidies. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the subsidies that have been removed? And was this because of outside pressure, which I guess I kind of answered that. Um, although I mean, I'm sure there's was, local elites that are excited to do that as well, but also the effects on people from the removal of these subsidies. Please go ahead. I mean, the argument to the IMF for the removal of subsidies was that, that these subsidies were benefiting the rich. Right. They were equally offered across across the spectrum. This, the subsidy system was a feature of a malfunctioning economic system. I'm not defending the subsidy system in itself. Removing the subsidies made people poorer because it also exposed people who couldn't buy their daily bread to a severe sort of price crisis with severe inflationary pressures, and they couldn't cover that. What the IMF did not offer at all and not consider is that how not only to reform the subsidy system, but how to think otherwise about the economy. And an element of that is if you want to keep the subsidies, if you want to remove the subsidies, what do you offer people instead? In my mind, the answer to the subsidy system is free education and free healthcare. That would take severe pressure on households. And you could glean that from households surveys where people explain what they expend, what they spend their money on. They spend it on food largely, but the second item on the list is healthcare and education especially for people who have children. And healthcare in Sudan is, has been completely privatized and it's a terribly expensive thing. And there is no truly functional insurance system to cover these costs. And um, it has, it's you know, on the open market, just like Sudan's fuel today. So had there been any interest in the well-being of the population, you would, in addition to, you would you might well remove the subsidy system because in a way it was a symptomatic of something malfunctional, symptomatic of the way that you were getting profits from the countryside and, and pushing them into the, into the city to fund a mal-aligned political system. But to make it work for people, removing the subsidy should have been coupled or would have been replaced by free healthcare and free education. And that was a demand that you could hear of every household is that this is what makes people sort of stay awake at night is that they don't know how they how will they care for their elderly mother or for their elderly father how will they buy medicine and these are terribly expensive items because they've been fully privatized including primary health care including things like vaccination campaign or basic basic health services for under 5 year olds you just can't get that very easily anymore it's difficult. It's not available. And this means that you have sort of expenditures on the household that are, that are terribly high. The same applies for education. Now, education has been privatized already beginning in the 90s. There are still government-funded schools, but they're so terribly underfunded that it's a complete waste of time to put your child in a school unless you just want him to. Maybe the child would come out from four years education with, with basic reading, writing skills and arithmetic, but um, this child would not make it very far in the job market. You need to spend a lot more on that child, the private level, um, uh, to make her competitive, especially knowing that these children are made for export. Um, families invest in their children because they want them to go somewhere to earn more money and to send it back home. 
So labor in itself an export item. And these are families insurance system against bad days is that you have a son or a daughter abroad who can um, sort of maintain your consumption levels or, or make sure that you get adequate health care in your old age. And it is these calculations that households make, including middle class households, about the way they deal with children or they invest in children. And, um, uh, and it's not even strange. Even Sudan's militias are now exported. You probably know that. Yeah, uh, when I get to that, yeah. Yeah, the, the, uh, the, yeah. The militia forces are fighting in places as disparate as Yemen. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've been fighting in, in Libya, where youngsters from Sudan, teenagers, are killing other te- teenagers um, on the Yemeni mountains. It's horrible. And I do want to get into that a little bit more, but I'm curious, I mean, based on everything you just said, um, would I mean, did the coup lead to economic suffering for the population? Well, it's, I mean, it's not just the coup. It's, the, it's policies that have been ongoing since 1978 and the different governments. It's mm-hmm. not, I wouldn't just home it on the coup. Of course, the coup meant that some of Sudan's international relations deteriorated. Some Western countries were not willing to pay the man in uniform or thought that that was a bad idea. But the policies in themselves have been in action almost since they they began sort of in the late in the late eighties, um, a, a, a reordering of economic system in Sudan. And the high point was the nineties during a big wave of privatization that was coupled with the subsidy system. That was a way of sort of uh, paying people off for, for, for privatization. And then the, the interim government, the transitional government, took away the subsidy system and maintained privatization. So people are not getting much out of anything, to be honest. Yeah. And so it's not, I, I think it, it would be misleading to just home in on the coup. Of course, the right. coup is a feature of the political disorder in the country, but the underlying reasons for that disorder are to be found in the way the country's economy works. And the way it has been restructured since the 80s is along the lines that you term new liberalization. So 2019, and you alluded this, to this before, but 2019 was not Sudan's first failed revolution. <laughs> not only was it not its first coup, it wasn't its, failed, uh, its first failed revolution. Can you remind the audience very briefly of what happened in 1964? Well, uh, 1964 was another date where, where also a sort of a, a crisis, in a way, precipitated uh, precipitated a, a revolutionary upsurge. But 1964 was very much uh, um, an, a revolution of Sudan's middle classes, a lot more than 2019. Of course, 2019, it is true that the middle classes were involved with the leadership, but the the, the bulk, the foot soldiers of that. Of that insurgency of that of that revolution was um, was really informal labor and, and um, a radicalized student sector. In in 1964, it was all about people reacting to sort of what, in my mind, is is Sudan's truly ancient sort of old regime, the regime built on the two big patrician parties, um, parties that controlled the countryside um, through means of religious co-optation, but also a, a very intricate um, system of um, of merchants and smaller merchants, a merchant economy, if you like, um, a, a sort of merchant capitalism. And and the leadership of that patrician system was, was vested in two houses. 1964 was in a large part um, the reaction of the educated classes in Sudan 
to the to the interests and of these two big patrician houses and it involved mobilizing a broad section of the educated populace the people who have been schooled who went through the school system and they did not understand themselves anymore as as um, as underlings of some patrician they came into their own into their own interest and of course it was the high tide of sudan's trade union movement and that was why it had such a strong emancipatory component it was the moment when sudan's women got the vote for instance when they entered parliament where they could get equal pay for equal labor at least in the formal sector in the informal sector of course things remained as they were and domestic labor remained completely exploited and it is a contradiction of of many places not only sudan the the emancipation of some women takes place at the expense of the continuous exploitation of others and in sudan that was essentially the relationship between the ed- emancipated educated women and the hyper exploited domestic labor from sudan's periphery which had shades of slave relations and slavery in it too now i won't develop this further but the point is it was a moment when 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 people were sort of aspired to uh, um, uh, a modernity if you like and where the trade union movement because of the large trade um, state owned sector or state controlled sector was in a position to bring state functioning to a halt because um, the cotton economy meant that you had a lot of people employed in the state sector to control that cotton to sort of to 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 sell it to market it to make sure that farmers were planting cotton the right way because it's an imported crop that people didn't really know um to make sure that they they so there was an army of agricultural inspectors an army of bureaucrats who were counting the cotton making sure they're getting every pence and so on and this system could be and of course there was a transport system for cotton that relied on the railway from Sudan central rainlands in Jazeera to Port Sudan on the Red Sea coast and um this meant also that state employees including people in the railways or people in 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 the Jazeera scheme where cotton was planted or um even bureaucrats in the finance ministries or the ministry of trade had the the power and the ability to bring the economy to the, to a halt by sort of stopping the cotton production and export system and um that was a time when sudan's educated classes sudan state employees had so much political muscle that they could define who sits in in the palace on the night if you like well on you know on that on that particular note since we're talking about you know revolutions or failed revolutions or what not I'm just curious your your take on this because you know whether it's the so-called you know Arab Spring or the October 2019 uprisings that we saw in Lebanon or Iraq or um you know 2014 in Ukraine if you want to call that an uprising or a coup or whatever either way there is this kind of similar phenomenon we see in other around the world I think it's kind of a global trend of uprisings but without necessarily like revolutionaries or maybe without leading to real change is the better way to put it. And so I'm curious, you know, your thoughts on this if it's a lack of ideology or perhaps a lack of organization. Um what do you think it is that that, that is behind this trend that we see of, you know, these sort of failed uprisings where ultimately things stay the same? 
Yeah, I mean, it's probably easy to say failed, but it's probably very difficult to make. Maybe I'm being too mean. Yeah, maybe I'm being too mean. (laughs) It's it's probably very... No, of course, one has to admit they haven't reached their objectives, or at least what people thought were objectives. I think the best way to think about them would be to start, in my mind, with the mother of all revolutions in the current era, the Egyptian revolution of 2011. Mm. And you had a very swift counterattack, a very swift counter-revolution, um, which today has almost erased even the memory of 2011, um, January. And you had a popular movement that relied very much on informal labor. There was organized labor in, in, in the protests of 2011. And you had these unsatisfied middle classes in it. You had this mix of unsatisfied middle class that saw their incomes deteriorate, their purchasing power fall, their ability to secure a good life deteriorate. And they were also aspiring to a notion of freedoms and rights that was coming from places like the US or or the UK and so on, which are all legitimate objectives. And you had people in in the labor world who were sort of, in many ways, fighting a lost cause. They wanted to maintain jobs at the time where jobs were being shed off. Um, they wanted to maintain a trade union culture at the time when that was almost not anymore on the table. And they were sort of subjected to a severe neoliberal onslaught. Um, and you had a new form, new forms of labor, informal labor, people who were making a living in the crevices and the dark alleys of the cities, if you like, by ways and means that are not all legal, but in any case, that's how they're making a living. And and these elements combined, and they, they, there wasn't a, a leadership, an organic leadership coming out of them. They were many and multiple leaderships, and there wasn't an ideology. Because the big answers, the last big answer to the world came from communism. And that's a word you can't really use in everyday life anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And people have no idea what is the alternative to a current system of capitalist exploitation. There is no obvious programmatic alternative on the table that's why it's probably asking too much if the most if the cleverest mind in the world have no idea what would be an alternative um it's yeah there's that's a good point <laughs> to ask young kids in a place like Khartoum yeah there is this kind of yeah there is this kind of like an economic system to replace capitalism right because ultimately that's the wall they're striking at it's yeah the the manifestations of that capitalism of the way capitalism works in a place like Sudan is what you see. The manifestations of capitalism in Sudan is, or capitalist penetration in a peripheral place like Sudan is, is hunger, is, is, is stunting, is crime, yeah. is informality. Uh, th- that's how capitalism works in this place because it only needs a cheap commodity from here. It needs raw material and nothing more. And everything else can be laid to waste. So I'm not sure if it's even new liberalism. It's just capitalism. No, no, no. It's true though. And it's, there is this kind of like head, like hegemony um, of capitalism culturally, at least around the world. And you're right there. There isn't an alternative that has any sort of popularity or sticks, sticks in anyone's minds. And at the end of the day, you also have, and I, I, you know, I don't know how much this applies to Sudan. I imagine it does to some degree, but you know, in a lot of these places, I can at least speak from the my experience in Lebanon, where I live, is you, you know, whenever there is any potential uh, or whenever there is 
anger that is that comes in the form of an uprising against symptoms of capitalism, very quickly you have these Western-funded NGOs that jump in and try to, you know, guide people in a certain direction so that they're not talking about capitalism. You know, they're they're blaming everything on local issues. Whereas, of course, you know, local issues, you know, local policies are a problem, but they're also connected to international, you know, capital. But yeah, it kind of removes the issue of capitalism from the language that people use and directs them in a different place. I don't know if that's the case, again, for Sudan. I imagine there's an that's NGO infrastructure true. that exists there as well that does no, something similar. True. Part of the problem of the transitional government, uh, the, what you call the civilians who took place after mm. Bashir was removed, was that they were sort of against, they were put up against the wall. They had to answer the question, how to fix this country? The answer they had was essentially Bashir's answer without Bashir. <laughs> the answer they had was remove the subsidies, reform the currency system, um, float the currency, and and ex- expand the market. This meant that more people were going hungry, more people could not afford healthcare, more people were not getting much out of their revolution. This meant also that people were unhappy and satisfied with the transitional government. They didn't give it sufficient political support. So when the winds blew in the other direction, many of these politicians were left alone because the revolution, if you like, didn't pay dividends. It didn't pay up. It didn't put food on people's tables. And and the, the politicians of the civilian government like many other people, I mean, some of them were excited about about unleashing, um, freeing capitalist forces in Sudan. They thought that would be the answer. It's that you need to liberate market forces enough as to make it work on the assumption that what they already had was dysfunctional capitalism. On the right. assumption that the problem was that Bashir's capitalism was not good capitalism. It was bad because it involved militias and it involved guns. But isn't that primitive accumulation? It had to involve guns and militias. The war in the the sacrificial war in Darfur that went on for 10 years was part of what the market system did to Darfur. It was part of what was necessary to free land of the peasantry and to get people of places where gold sits underground, to get rid of ancient land titles, to get rid of communal ways of thinking about land relations, you had to have a war. The war was a symptom of, of in, in my mind, what the market system was doing to a place that lived for a long part of its history on on sort of uh, on sustenance a system that was not based on on, on well i'm glad you actually raised darfur because i'd like to ask you to elaborate a little bit on that um you know in 2014 sudan launched this counterinsurgency campaign uh and crushed the darfur uprising that had begun back i think in 2003 so just to build on what you're saying, I mean, can you briefly explain why this uprising occurred and how it was suppressed? And I think it's really interesting you frame it in the in the context of pushing people off land. I mean, Darfur was was is a place where sort of Sudan's environmental crisis also comes to the fore because it is a place where the um, where the Sahel meets the savanna, if you like. It's a place where the the drier parts of the Sahelian 
belt meet the more richer savanna. It also includes pockets of um, of agricultural production where where people rely on their livelihood on working the land, as compared to broad areas, vast areas where uh, transhumant sort of pastoralists move across um, environmental zones and climate zones to keep their livestock alive. And the environmental pressure on these very sort of difficult at times sort of precarious relations between farmers and between pastoralists were thrown out of balance by the drought, the, the long dry, um, the, long, the long drought that happened in the 1980s, and also by the militarization of the consequences of the drought, because the drought produced um, people who had lost their livestock. It also produced people who had no more access to livelihood. And the gun became a way of making a livelihood, especially in the Libyan war. And the Libyan war attracted fighters from Darfur who made a buck out of it and came back home with a bit of money and uh, also with fighting experience. And with that fighting experience, they sought to change land relations in Darfur because they did not, they didn't do agriculture. They depended on livestock. And they wanted everywhere to become a place for livestock. They wanted to encroach on lands that were used for agriculture. On the other hand, people who had lived on agriculture for, for many years um, were entering the export economy. They did not only produce for themselves, they were beginning to produce for the market, which means that they wanted to expand um, their agricultural holdings. And that friction between people who were competing for meager resources with different coping mechanisms um, was resolved through warfare. And the pastoralists could, could draw on, on the entire African Sahel, if you like, on a record of fighting along the African Sahel. People who, who were moving across national borders between places like between Darfur and Chad and Libya and Niger, people who were moving across these borders in searching for ways of making a living. And the gun became the epicenter of that. And I think the, the, the um, Darfur's farmers were just in many ways overwhelmed by these powerful, powerful pastoralists who had learned how to use guns. They created their own insurgencies, their own rebel movements. And, but these rebel movements were were crushed very, I mean, it took some time to crush them, but eventually they were crushed, or they were pulled into circuits of fighting that were a far cry from what they initially intended to. They ended up fighting wars in Libya for other people, and nothing to do with their own concerns back home, or fighting a war in the Central African Republic for other commanders because they needed to make money, because the militia in itself became a form of, of a livelihood. War in itself became a livelihood. And the ideological motives and the ideological sort of the grievances that initiated the war were one story, but how the internal dynamics of that war uh, were another, especially after things go on for years and years. And you can see that in a place like Afghanistan, where mm -hmm. you can't anymore control who fights for what. And in many ways, therefore, it became exactly such a place. It's not clear who fights for what. 
And it's not clear who's on whose sides and people can switch sides very easily and very quickly because fighting in itself became a business. It's been, yeah. It became a way of acquiring, um, of controlling trade routes, of acquiring land, of acquiring mining rights. Um, it became a way of taxing, um, of forming, of sort of enforcing taxes on on traders who were moving merchandise between different countries. There was a time in Darfur where every 10 kilometers you would have somebody telling you to pay something because <sighs> they were taxing the, the trade routes. And these would be competing warlords or competing rebel armies or rebel movements would be doing this and would be forcing the population into chains of taxation, which also meant that the traditional livelihoods were decimated and people became completely dependent on foreign aid in, in large and, and inhospitable refugee and internal displacement camps in Darfur and in Chad. And these are the places where you can recruit militias. These are the places where you can fight young men who could fight on any side because these are communities that have been uprooted, that, that don't have a direction anymore, that have no relationship to land, that don't know how they are going to make a living, that are um, that don't have, where social ties have been completely distraught and where the moral economy that binds um, a village in, in a place like Darfur or even in Lebanon is not anymore intact. Um, that moral economy doesn't operate anymore. People are left to sort out matters by themselves, which means they could end up joining this or that militia or it doesn't really matter anymore. You yeah. want to survive in a... In a Highest bidder. Yeah. You know, what has been the impact of losing South Sudan? And are there any calls at all for reunification, given how South Sudan has become essentially a failed state? Well, I'm not sure if it's somebody... I come from northern Sudan. I think we don't have the right to speak a, a single word about that. The relationship between North Sudan and, and South Sudan was a highly exploitative relationship. It was... It involves a long history of slavery, of exploitation, of, uh, of control, of, of, of labor ex exploitation, of, of, um, of unequal relations, and involves a lot of racism. And um, I understand that people would be calling for a reunion of Sudan and South Sudan from some sort of progressive anti-American position, which is which is fair to say, but. I'm not sure if they were one at any point in time. Mm. So mm -hmm. the, there was a political unity, of course, that's true. But I'm not sure if you could speak of it, if you could say more than that. And that political unity was enforced by the gun. Of course. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure if you could, you could just comment on that. Um, sort of off fair enough, of, fair you know, enough, fair enough. I think, I think um, it's a... It's a it's a, contentious. It's a contentious it's, issue. It's very contentious. And yes. I think also that, of course, in many ways, maybe that's the karma of nations. In many ways, Sudan is becoming more and more like South Sudan. Mm. The South Sudan that people mocked in 2011 is a place where militias arrive and there is no stable government and there's civil war. The, right. the Sudan that enjoyed some of that stability in its post-colonial history because it had wide peripheries that it could draw resources from is now closer to that place than it was um, 10 years ago. 
it's looking more and more like sort of the pure form of of of, of uh, the pure form. If the pure form is if is South Sudan, then we Sudan is approximating that pure form, is moving into that direction. Um, the political parties are sort of um, in a way bankrupt. They don't have much to offer. Government is completely military, not completely, but terribly militarized. Militarization is the order of the day. Production systems are highly militarized. And the basic functions of the state, including in urban centers, are not any more guaranteed, like maintenance of security. Um, that looks very much like the type of problems you have in South Sudan. Indeed. Um, I wanted to ask you also about the issue of, you know, Nile politics and the potential impact of the Ethiopian dam over Sudan. I mean, there, there's not much science. There's a lot of politics about that and little science. There are, it depends who you ask. So you will hear all sorts of opinions. People will tell you that's in the benefits of Sudan. Others will tell you, no, it's not in the benefit. But I think one important lesson to draw from that is... I mean, I don't understand much about dams, but I understand a bit about the history of dams in Sudan. And it, in, in, in Sudan, it involved a lot of displacement and a lot of destruction for local communities, a lot of lost memories and lost histories. And it didn't produce much electricity there after all. Um, Sudan built into 2000, after the discovery of oil, it constructed a big dam on the Nile called the Meru Dam. That was supposed to solve Sudan's electricity problem. It didn't. Sudan, I just came back from Khartoum a week ago or so. There are electricity shortages every second day. The demand for electricity is high, is increased. There was a time when, of course, the, the electricity production from the new dam was beneficial, and the government even reduced the price of electricity as a sort of present to the urban urban dwellers. Now the price of electricity is 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 terribly high because it has been, it's, it's on the open market it has been liberalized like everything every everything every every other item um, has become a commodity on the open market and and the production of electricity is not satisfactory because the the dam system proved to be not the best system to produce electricity because it involves a lot of silting and to remove that silt that, that clogs these dams and blocks the turbines that produce the electricity, you need to spend a lot of money maintaining them. And um, governments don't like spending money on maintenance. So they wait forever until the turbines sort of stop working and then they maintain one turbine at a turn, which means that the electricity production is going down. The cost of maintaining that production is high because of the high maintenance costs. And you have this mountain on, of cement on the Nile um, instead of electricity. And mm. so I'm not sure, I, I don't know much about it. I would love to understand it better if people would produce that. <laughs> well, just, you know, I guess actually just, you know, I understand like the science and the dam and stuff, but just like tangentially related to the issue of Ethiopia. I mean, there is this, there has been this Ethiopian civil war taking place, which has led to the displacement of millions of people, including across the border, uh, yeah. to Sudan. And some refugee camps have, of course, become militarized. So I'm just curious, you know, how has the war in Ethiopia impacted Sudan? And is Sudan playing any sort of role? Well, I'm not sure about the roles. I'm not a, I'm not a security geek, so I don't know about who is playing which role. But I, I can tell you this. I guess we can do is speculate. <laughs> it also, it reduced 
there was an influx Sudan has. I'm talking about, I want to talk, say something about these refugees. Mm. Sudan has been depending on refugees from Ethiopia and Eritrea or migrants from Ethiopia and Eritrea. The long war between Ethiopia and Eritrea and before that the Eritrean Liberation War, as well as the Ethiopian insurgency and the milice against and the TPLF against uh, the Derg regime, was paradoxically beneficial for a place like Sudan. It meant, of course, it meant there was a refugee crisis at the border, which was left over to the UN system to sort out. And there was a bit of pressure on food system. But it meant that you had terribly cheap labor. Yeah. You had people who were willing to work for sub, um, well, terribly low wages in the vast tracts of land in Gadarif and the arena. And a lot of Sudan's wealth that was produced in the 70s, in the 80s, and even into the 90s, throughout these long wars in Ethiopia and Eritrea, um, is actually taken out from the shoulders of these Ethiopian labor, labor, the Ethiopian agricultural labor, men and women. And it is the same men and women who are also part of the sort of domestic labor system in urban centers. So I'm, people would make, find ways of exploiting these wars to, their, with, yeah. to their benefit and pushing, out, pushing down uh, labor prices. It also meant that the labor price in the country remains low. And one way of doing that is through continuous wars. You always need a war to keep labor prices down because wars produce refugees, produce displaced people and who need anything, need an income of any sort, and they would accept very low labor costs. There's also, I'll add, I don't know if this is the case for Sudan, but I, I know that with Lebanon, there you know there's so many refu- Syrian refugees in Lebanon over the years. And part of the country's income became receiving money to host refugees. Yeah. I'm not sure if that was the case for Sudan. Well, but that, I mean, that they, also... of course, part of the country's income under Bashir, and probably, I don't know if it continues until today, was coming from the so-called Khartoum process. Mm. Um, so the European Union was paying Sudan to keep refugees away from its borders. Right. So in a way, Sudan was acting like a policeman in the Sahara for against migrants coming from places like Eritrea and Ethiopia who are moving northwards to cross the Mediterranean. If they manage to cross it, most of them end up in the, in the deep sea. Yeah. And, um, and of course, uh, Sudan was using the, at the beginning of the war, the, not at the beginning, but at sort of the escalation of the Tigrayan war, Sudan was using the argument of, oh, we're hosting so many refugees in Eastern Sudan to argue for more um, money coming in from the UN system. Right. I, okay. I, I mean, I don't mind money coming in from the UN system. They should pay, but I'm not sure if they're paying it. The right, paying it right, because right. then it just ends up ending up in people's bank accounts. I mean, honestly, that's what ends up happening. Well, I wanted to ask you about a little bit of a different aspect here, and that's, you know, Omar Bashir had at one point abandoned Iran and supported the Saudi war in Yemen and sent as you mentioned, Sudanese fighters to fight there. But despite that, he was still deposed. So why do you think this wasn't enough to keep him in power? In a way, it kind of reminds me of Gaddafi reconciling with the West, but still getting overthrown. I mean, it wasn't only that. Uh, It was beginning with the secession of South Sudan. I mean, at the secession of South Sudan in 2000, what was it, 2011, um, at the independence, part of the bargain that was understood by Sudanese officials is that the Americans um, had their, the Americans promised or were said to have promised if Sudan would let South Sudan go, Sudan would be lifted off the state supporters of terrorism list 
sanctions would be lifted, Sudan's relations with the West would improve. Sudan would be brought in from the cold, as it were. That didn't happen. Instead, a war blew up in Darfur that was badly managed by Khartoum. It, could, it sort of turned completely out of control, and it was it was very impossible for any observer to sort of call for improved relations between Sudan and the West. It took ten years for that for talk about that improvement to come back uh, after the essentially the war in Darfur was finished to the benefit of Khartoum, and the insurgency was defeated, and all these people were killed. Um, there was a renewed discussion of improving relations with Sudan. And indeed, the Obama administration lifted some of the sanctions on Sudan, and there was an opening of discussions. At that point in time, there were also improved relations with the Saudis, and Sudan moved away from the Iranian axis towards the Saudi axis. But remember, what brought down Bashir essentially was his incapability to feed, to feed the urban population. He wasn't capable of managing the urban crisis. He didn't have enough money. He went out shopping for money, which he did in 2013, and he got some money at that time from the Qataris. He went out shopping for money again shortly before the ter- his terminal crisis. But he was a man into his 70s, and he had a big competitor that he had brought in into the house. He had brought in the leader of this militia in, as into, into Khartoum, into the close to the palace, somebody who was directly involved in sending young men to fight the Yemeni war. And it was in the interest of the Saudis and probably the Emiratis to get somebody as as um, like yeah, this they, young, they can't fight their own wars. That's for but, sure. But like this, this young man who was willing to sort of ship men and and ship fighters and ship and ship livestock to Riyadh and, and uh, Abu Dhabi and Dubai at a low cost, and that's a uh, that's something you don't get every day, yeah. and um, um, I think just Bashir played out all his hands. He had. Because it also became the environment in the region became very difficult to play this side against that side. He had done all that already. He had outwitted his sort of regional players for ages. He had survived long enough. Thirty years is not a short period of time, and um, I think he was at the end of the at the end of his of anything that could be even remotely believable. Mm. Um, even the turn away from the. The, the Iranians thought the Saudis. The Saudis wanted to clamp down on the Muslim Brotherhood. They wanted him to dissolve his own ruling party, and that was something that he couldn't deliver. Uh, that was not technically possible. He would have been taking the rug under his own feet if he would defeat the own the very Islamists who maintained the system according to which he ruled. Yeah, you know, Sudan like was a pariah state in recent memory, at least in the way it was depicted around the world, but was in fact a large recipient of U.S. military aid in the 70s and 80s. And then after the 2019 coup overthrowing Bashir, uh, this general, Burhan, quickly reached out to Israel, as we we alluded to earlier. I wanted to, to get into this a little bit more. Was this his initiative or was this a result of U.S. pressure and is Sudan, you know, becoming part of the pro-Israel, pro-America regional security architecture? I'm not sure if it's becoming. I think it is somehow. It is. Already I mean, is. It, it, I mean, that whether whether he did this sort of, where the motivation comes from, in my mind, is that like many autocrats in the region, um, these men in uniform look up to the Israeli army. That is the ideal of government in the region. The ideal of government is that you have 
such a capable security system that is that has the ability to crush an entire people for 50 years continuously. That that level of security control is nobody in the region has that apart from the Israeli army. And I think that's that's what many of these men look up to. Sudan looked up to to the US army in the 70s. It sent uh, it sent officers to train in the in the US. It was a recipient of US military aid, um, uh, generous military aid. It took part in joint operations with the US and the Egyptian military. Um, Operation Bright Star, it was called, and these operations still continue. Um, after 2018-19, Sudan came back away, in a way came back to that world, not to the full because of the mismanagement of the military. The, the military hasn't really pulled, it, it's not a very successful counter-revolution. I mean, it is a counter-revolution, but it's not very successful. You talked about failed revolutions, um, you might as well talk about failed counter-revolutions. Mm. I mean, he had... <laughs> He pulled off a coup, but he can't consolidate power in his hands yet. He hasn't crushed the popular movement yet. He hasn't ruled with the iron fist yet. And he's finding difficulties doing that because the security apparatus is not functioning the way he wants it to function, because international relations will not allow that too much, and because he has a hesitant hand. And, of course, there is the option that the Americans are dangling all the time, is these continuous and endless talks. Um, he hasn't pulled off a CC plot that hasn't <laughs> happened in Sudan yet. Um, to pull off a CC plot, you need um, an intact security apparatus. Right. And that's something he hasn't been able to mend yet, um, to work as a single force. And he has absolutely no ideological motif inside his operation. Um, even CC, despite all his idiocy, has some sort of ideological motif inside of it, something around Egyptian nationalism. Even that is not working in Sudan today. So the notion that that notion of Egyptian, that notion of Sudanese nationalism that might come from the military is not very much marketable because Sisi could say, I killed the Muslim Brotherhoods. These were the bad guys. Burhan killed everybody. Um, ah. And in, 30th, in, in June 2019, um, it's very difficult for him to claim to have attacked the enemy. Um, and it's very difficult to lay the blame at the hands of the Muslim Brotherhoods alone. And people are coming to the to the idea that, well, the Muslim Brotherhoods are essentially a, are a major problem, but the military is also a problem. The way the military operates is also a problem. Whether that is thanks because of the infiltration of the Muslim Brotherhoods or because of its own intrinsic institutional interests. And it is these sorts of insights that are partially coming from the Egyptian experience that make it difficult for somebody like Burhan to complete his counter-revolution. Because people have the lessons of Egypt in mind, and they keep throwing his offers back at his face, um, and it's making it politically difficult for him to pull off an entire round. There is significant international support for some sort of arrangement that involves um, what you call the civilian leaders and the military in some sort of expanded compromise, um, but they haven't pulled it off yet because they are still young women and men were willing to continue protesting on the streets and risk their lives uh, under sniper fire, and who are learning to talk a different language. Uh, they might not succeed. They might be crushed and defeated like the Egyptian revolutionaries of 2011. But that, that potential, that possibility, is at the heart of what they're imagining. It's also providing a new way of thinking about politics or, 
or considering what options they might have. Um, and that should make sort of your listeners also think about not only the failures of revolution, but the failures of counter-revolution. Right. Who, who are not good dictators. I mean, a good dictator <laughs> is like... It's like you can't say too much more, or else if there's a dictator watching, he might be taking yeah. notes and being like, what am yeah. I doing wrong? No. <laughs> but no, that's a, that's a very good point. And, you know, I really do appreciate your time here. I just have one more question I wanted to ask you. Uh, you talked a bit about hunger, um, both in the countryside as well as in the urban areas. But hunger in the countryside especially has increased since 2019. Why is that? And why is there this history of famines in Sudan? Hmm. That's, a bit, that's because the countryside produces for urban consumption. The countryside produces for a market system that relies on import. And the countryside produces raw products that are directly shipped to Port Sudan, to somewhere in, in the UK or the US or God knows where, or to the Arab Gulf. And it is the intermediaries who are making, are cutting off the profits. So the producers end up, which are the majority of the, of the, of the rural population, end up with very little money, um, as opposed to the traders, the people who stand in between to produce, who sort of constitute the linkages between the export market and the production system. It is that linkage where the money is made. These chains, these chains of internal trade and external trade. And these are very busy places, very busy chains. You've got many intermediaries, people who are sort of making a buck out of each step forward in the chain. And um, including, of course, the, the, the big um, exporters with the with the with the suits and ties, and the the militia soldier who's con- who's making sure that you're 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 paying your taxes along the road, and um, it is that that system is what keeps people poor in the countryside because they they don't get much out of what they produce by their own hands. I think the example of agricultural pl- labor in a place like Qadarif is probably the best, where People make produce sorghum for the entire country, even for Ethiopia and Eritrea for export market, but they can't afford to buy it themselves because what they're getting from from the as as a wage for their own labor is just too little. It's not even a sufficient living wage, and that just goes a long way to explaining the labor theory of value that some theoreticians already discredit. And a place like Sudan would pr- provide good evidence for these theoretical considerations it will sort of open up capitalism to scrutiny again because you mm. see it in actual operation with very little of the ideological and the technical um, um, technical uh, sort of uh, games that are played to hide its true nature its exploitative nature well, Magdi, I really appreciate you joining me for, for this long to discuss uh, all things related to Sudan. Can you let our listeners and viewers know where they can find your work? Oh, I'm well, oh, that's a good question. Some of it <laughs> is published by the Rift Valley Institute, and uh, but most of those links to, to most of what I've written, um, you can find on, on a blog called stillsudan.blogspot.com. Um, um, and... Um, and they are the scattered pieces in Arabic that you would have to make a, a greater effort to find. But <laughs> very obscure things. 
<laughs> and I saw that you also are published by Middle East Eye every so yes, often. Yes, as well. yes. There, there, are two, there are several pieces published by Middle East Eye, more of a sort of political nature. And um, uh, they are, uh, you can find it on, on, a, on the Royal, no, not the Royal, was it? Rope. The Review of African ah, right. has published two pieces. And um, yes. you will also find something on the Spectre Journal, which is a, a new US. Um, it names itself Marxist Journal. It's interesting that the journal okay. is itself Marxist. <laughs> <laughs> it's becoming more. It's becoming okay in the U.S. to, yes, to I identify suppose as so, Marxist. Yes, suppose yeah, it's these days. Well, I want to. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me and breaking all this down for us. Oh, thank you very much. That's that's very kind of you. Thank you for the invitation and thank you for listening to all that I've tried to say. <laughs>